This morning's message is a message uh, to the people of Bethlehem, which I hope will be an encouragement and a help to those of you who are guests with us today. It's a kind of milestone message in the life of our church, I believe, at least I'm praying that it will be in some significant ways. It has to do about managing stress and pressure in the life of a church. There are two wholesome ways, at least two, for handling multiple stresses in your life and in the life of a church. One way is to reduce the number of stresses. Somehow get some of them out of your life. Now that's not always possible. And sometimes it's not desirable either, especially in wartime or crisis time in a person's life where you simply have to cope, you have to learn a way of dealing with manifold pressures and multiple stresses that combine to press on you. And so the second way, besides diminishing the number of stresses, to managing, enduring, and even flourishing and delighting under stress, is to see a design in the stresses. To see the good hand of God putting pieces together in your life so that they're not chaos. They're not absurd. They don't just pop up willy-nilly and confusingly. But rather they seem to take on a pattern and the seeing of the pattern and the seeing of the design causes a coping power to arise. Now I've learned this somewhat from experience, but I've seen it in Scripture. I want to illustrate it from the life of the Apostle Paul first. Let me describe for you multiple stresses. I believe Paul lived almost constantly under stresses that most of us never taste. Listen to this. Three times I have been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I have been shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been adrift at sea. On frequent journeys. In danger from rivers. Danger from robbers. Danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brethren, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from all other things, there is the daily pressure upon me of my anxiety for all the churches." So let's not feel too sorry for ourselves at Bethlehem. Now, how did he do that? How did he survive? How did he not just cave in or run away to, where do you go, Morocco? Or why, didn't, why didn't he just throw in the towel midlife like so many have done? Well, let me read another text. And in this text, I see Paul's secret. And they come from the same book. That was 2 Corinthians 11.25. This is 2 Corinthians 1.8. We were so unbearably, utterly crushed that we despaired of life itself. Why, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But, now, right here, tune in. Because he's going to articulate the perceived design of God in his misery. And in perceiving the design of God, he gets strength to live. 
But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. On Him we have set our hope. So do you see how He did it? There was this immense crushing experience in Asia where everything just got too much and He said, we're done for, we're going to die. And then He thought, no, or maybe yes. But whatever, there's a purpose in this. There's a divine design and the purpose is that I might stop relying on my life, my health, my acceptance, my prosperity, my success, and might rely on Christ and God who raises the dead. That's God's design right now in the pressures of my life. And he took heart from it and put his hope in God. Now that's what I want to commend to us at Bethlehem today. That we find God's design. You know, I called David on the phone last night because I remembered back from my college days reading a psychiatrist who had done the study of the Holocaust survivors. And I couldn't remember his name for anything, but I remembered the quote. And David remembered the name, namely Victor Frankl. And you remember he studied why it was that so many of the survivors were able to cope under the manifold un speakable pressures and miseries of Holocaust uh, concentration camps, and some weren't. And the concluding sentence, or the summary sentence, was, he who has a why to live can endure almost any how. If you can see a design and a purpose in it all, a strange and wonderful and deep coping power moves into your life. And sometimes it can even transform the pressures into energy-giving challenges. Rather than having them deplete, they begin to feed. Now what I've been trying to do at Bethlehem in recent weeks is figure out God's design of the stresses that are on us. Um, there are about a half a dozen controversial issues on the table at Bethlehem right now. And the question is, are they just popping up willy-nilly with no meaning? Are they chaos? Is it disarray or is it God's design? And the more I think and the more I pray, the less I believe it is chaos and the more I believe it's design. Is God adjusting things? Is he putting things in place so that there can be launched and sustained a decade called 2000 by 2000, bigger and beyond anything we've ever dreamed before as a church? Or is it all just confusing with no meaning and no design? So I want to take these six issues and uh, try to put them in a design that I see as I pray about them and study them with regard to Scripture. You know, the end of centuries are, are strange times in the history of the church. The ends of centuries are wonderfully productive times in the life of the church. You go back to the 1690s, the ends of the 1600s, and what you find, for example, is the, the explosion of the German pietist movement on the continent with uh, Jacob Spener and uh, Franke founding the University of Halle 
And in the mid-90s, founding a mission school in that university and the first missions journal being started at the end of the 1690s was a remarkable time of awakening. Really, the first interest of Protestants in organized foreign missions was in the 1690s under that impulse. You move ahead 100 years to the 1790s and you all know what happened there. William Carey gets this fire in his bones and founds the Baptist Missionary Society and then in 1792 goes to India never to come back for 40 years and is the father of the modern missionary movement. Then you move ahead another 100 years to the 1890s and who do you have there? D.L. Moody and uh, A.J. Gordon and A.T. Pearson and John R. Mott all crisscrossing the country firing up the churches and the students for missions and especially the student volunteer movement which was born in 1886 and then came to life under Mott's leadership in the 1890s and sent 8,000 university students overseas in the next 20 years under the banner the evangelization of the world in our generation. Now here we are a hundred years later And there is so much happening in the world today in terms of evangelizing this world. Books like this, trying to keep pace and chronicle the countdown to 82,000. That's showing what God is doing all over the world in third world missions and first world missions and second world missions. It is an amazing thing that is happening in the world today in renewal and in missionary dreams and visions. And if you would ask me, what is God doing at Bethlehem? My answer would be that God is very graciously and tenderly drawing us into the center of his purposes for the final thrust of world evangelization. He's drawing us into the center so that we're not left out on the periphery asleep. He's drawing us right into the center of what he's doing in our day and opening our eyes to see what awesome days these are to be alive in and how high the stakes are and how intense the spiritual warfare is and how terrible and strong the enemy is and how terribly drugged the church is with the tranquilizers of ease and comfort and a peacetime mentality that is not awake to what God is doing in the world. How many evangelicals there are in the world who all they think about is going to church on Sunday, keeping their nose morally clean and moving up the scale in their lifestyle. And as far as they're concerned, nothing else matters in the world. And I hate it. And I don't want any part of it. And I want to lead this church into the center of passion and zeal that strips down our lifestyles for the cause of Christ. I believe God is drawing us into the center of what he plans to do to complete the Great Commission in this decade. There is a great shaking going on in the world. Did not he shake the nations last year? Did not God shake the nations? In Eastern Europe last year, did we feel the reverberations? Can we feel it yet? And is he not going to shake the Muslim world? Isn't he shaking the Middle East? Isn't he going to shake North Korea, Mongolia, Albania, Cuba? Won't these nations be shaken in our day? And is he not shaking the church? Is not Bethlehem being shaken today? Thus says the Lord of hosts, Once again, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all the nations come in. 
And I will fill this house with splendor, says the Lord of hosts. The body of Christ, the church of the living God, is going to be the beneficiary of the shaking of the nations. And they are going to be the beneficiary of the shaking of the church. Bethlehem is being shaken. And you know why? We are being shaken as a church to find out what we want. God is shaking us to ask us, what do you want from me? What do you want from me? What is your passion? What is your desire? What is your longing at Bethlehem? Do you just want another decade like the 80s at Bethlehem? And my heart's fear is that there are many of us saying, yes, that's exactly what we want. I mean, what more could you want? Tripled attendance, manifold ministries multiplied, sextupled missionary budget. I mean, what more would you want than the 80s all over again? And my answer to that is, we might want to be filled with all the fullness of God. We might want to be clothed with power from on high. We might want to have all the lukewarmness and flamed with passion for Christ. We might want tenfold times more courage and boldness and love in witness. We might want the Lord to add to the church daily as many as are being saved. Not monthly. We might want God to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we've asked or thought. We might want him to bring in a harvest of 2,000 and send out 2,000 by the year 2,000. God is shaking us to see what we want. And if all you can imagine is status quo Bethlehem, you're out of step with the leadership. Now, let me very briefly try to give you a design to see if God would cause you to catch on to what he's doing. I'm going to take the six points of controversy, face them head on, and try to show you that they are a divine design to fit us for 2000 by 2000, which we'll unpack tonight. Now, take your worship folders, and uh, I confess I'm not a great artist, but... The point will be plain, I think, by the time we're done. Everything I have to say pretty much is here. So I'm going to go quickly, and I'm going to move from the bottom up. What I have here is six foundation stones that I believe are, in fact, coherent foundation stones, all of them flowing out of controversy right now at Bethlehem, except one. But it's tension-producing, and so I included it. Number one, at the bottom. There is the controversy of the baptism with the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts. And we've been talking about it all year. And we've talked about it for years, in fact. I preached 22 messages on the Holy Spirit not long after I came here. Taught a whole long Sunday evening service sequence on 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. We've talked about the Holy Spirit and laid bare our passion and our non-cessationist theology for ten years. There's nothing new 
except a little bit of a refinement here and there. And all I think I want to make plain this morning is this. The fundamental reality that I believe we ought to unite behind here, quite apart from whether we agree on certain terminological applications. The fundamental reality is this. Without an extraordinary touch of the Holy Spirit on this church, we will not be able to do our part in the decade of the 90s to complete the Great Commission. I don't believe we can do it without, underline the word, extraordinary power. And I base that on Acts 1.8 and Luke 24.49 again and again and again. Unless we are clothed with power from on high, something like Pentecost, something like Acts 4, something like Stephen in Acts 7, something like Paul in Acts 13, unless it happens like that, we won't do it. This city will go right on its way to hell. They won't even know we're here. We will not fill the city with our teaching like they did in Jerusalem. They filled the city with their teaching, it says in Acts 5. If you don't agree that we need an extraordinary touch of God's Spirit, you will be out of step and you will not like the pursuit that we're in. And I just pray that that won't be true. I pray that however you define that, you will long for all the fullness of God. Ephesians 3.19. Number two. All that power in real life must be channeled through a structure. A governance structure that is biblical and that is ministry mobilizing. And that's controversial right now. Because we have on the table right now a proposed new constitution and governance structure which we'll vote on in December. And I don't believe it's an accident that that's on the table at the same time that 2,000 by 2,000 is being put on the table. And the reason I don't think it's an accident is because I believe God has been calling us for years to a more biblical governance structure. And I believe the one that has been designed over the past four years in the making is a missionary document. For a couple of reasons, it's a missionary document. It's a missionary document because it is a ministry and mission mobilizing structure. It does not equate office holding with ministry. It equates office holding with equipping for ministry. Ministry does not mean get an office and sit on a board. Ministry means go out into the world and change lives. The boards exist to be streamlined, to equip, to be free to mobilize. It's a mobilizing missionary document. And the second reason it is, is because it was as a missionary that Paul appointed elders in every church. It was as a missionary that he wrote to Timothy in Ephesus and Titus in Crete, appoint elders and make sure they have these qualifications, elders and deacons. It's no accident that this particular kind of structure is on the table at a time when we are proposing 2,000 harvest and 2,000 cent by the year 2000. We believe that the ministry mobilizing, mission mobilizing simplicity of the new governance structure is part of God's design for the decade. Number three. This is the one that's not controversial, but is tension-producing. Namely, funding a strategic base of operations. 
We have a lot of money to raise, and we will always have a lot of money to raise. There will never be a time when we will be breathing easy at Bethlehem. I don't believe in sitting on big cushions and breathing easy. We stretch and stretch and stretch till Jesus comes. And if that sounds like you might get broken, just wait. We're going to get to that block in a few minutes. The point is, we need $400,000 by the end of this year, not counting the building fund to pay for the base of operations going up on the parking lot. And you compute quickly, that comes to $40,000 a Sunday by now, from now to the end of the year. Now, what comforts me in this is that the Apostle Paul was a fundraiser, as well as an apostle, as well as a teacher and a missionary If you want to see his fundraising principles, read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. I read them again and again and again because I have to be a fundraiser. And I want to do it like Paul does. And as I read those chapters, I find one fundamental, deep conviction and principle behind everything he says. Namely, 2 Corinthians 9, 8. God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance in order that you may have enough of everything and may provide in abundance for every good work. Now, there is a motto for the life of the Apostle Paul and his fundraising and for my life and your life and the life of this church. And it goes like this. Enough for us abundance for the work. Now, that is a lifestyle that thousands of evangelicals have rejected. And I really get worked up here. Thousands of evangelicals believe they should tithe and have done their duty. And so if you make $800,000 a year, tithe and you've done your duty. If you make $100,000, tithe and you've done your duty. And this text says, make sure you have enough. And make sure the work and the cause has the abundance. Which simply means decide on an enough kind of lifestyle and funnel everything into the kingdom above it and beyond it. That's the New Testament principle of giving, not tithing. Tithing is a fundamental minimum starting place based on the Old Testament level of grace We are called to keep the minimum level of enoughness. And I won't tell you what that is, but Jesus will tell you what that is if you ask him. You know whether you are keeping more than enough for yourself and not giving the abundance to the cause of Christ. If we were to live like that, Bethlehem wouldn't need all your money. You could give to 50 agencies besides Bethlehem and we would do just fine. And so the challenge before us is simply to be like the Apostle Paul. Enough for us, abundance for the good works. And I believe that the ministry and mission of this church is a good work. I believe that the building of that base of operations out there is a good work. I believe that 2,000 by 2,000 is a good work. And therefore, I believe that God will provide. If I didn't believe that, I don't think I'd be able to cope with the pressure of $400,000 by the end of this year. Number four, a controversy surrounding whether or not we should add another pastoral staff person in the area of adult education, small groups, and young adult ministries. And basically the question that we were discussing on Wednesday night and have been at other times is one of timing. Is it the right timing 
with the kinds of pressures financially that are upon us in these months and in the years to come, the building and expanding in missions and so on? Now, that's a good question. It's a legitimate question. And we will go on debating that question. And while we debate, here's what I want us to feel as a deep, underlining, unifying perception. Namely, this proposal fits. It is not a bolt out of the blue that makes no sense in the design that God is framing at Bethlehem. It fits. And the way it fits is this. The young adults on whom this staff person would be mainly focused, so-called baby boomers and now busters, that group of people has been the explosive growth edge of this church and will probably continue to be the growth edge of this church. And in that group, God is calling most, though not all, mostly from that group, the vocational ministers and the vocational missionaries from this church. So that the 50 to 70, 60 some people in the pipeline to vocational ministries at Bethlehem are out of that group. Now, thousands and thousands of that group have sold their soul to goodies, games, and gold. But very quickly, we are discovering that the moth and the rust take their toll. And they begin to look for spirituality. They find it in the craziest of places. And we just need to be there. We need to be there. If we lose that generation, we will not in this decade accomplish what God is calling us to accomplish in world evangelization. Therefore, I believe that the staff person charged with mobilizing, equipping, and flaming that group is no accident. Number five. There has been controversy in recent months over schedule changes. Sunday evening service every other Sunday now with small groups every other Sunday. And the BITC, the Bethlehem Institute and Training Center, on Wednesday night. Now, without going into all the detailed rationale of SPAN 2, which was the document that created all of these changes, we just need to remember that there are some very powerful reasons for these things. They have a design that fits. Number one in that design is to press on us that ministry happens outside these walls, not inside these walls, and therefore you don't judge the success of the ministry of the church by how many services they can successfully pull off, but how much world is being changed. And secondly, we must find a church pace and a staff pace and an individual pace to finish the race. The race, if we embrace as a church the unified vision of 2000 by 2000, we will be in a race for 10 years to send out 2000 people and to harvest 2000 people by the year 2000. If you begin a marathon sprinting, you won't finish. You must find the pace to finish the race. And I believe very deeply that the first leg of the race, we have found the pace for in span two as it exists right now. We're wide open to adjusting that pace, speeding it up, 
pulling it back as we enter the next leg in a year or two. And so just, just pray with us. We've got our ear to the ground. We're trying to keep our fingers on our own pulse and your pulse, the church's pulse, the movement of the, of the city and the world to find a pace that isn't lazy, that isn't exorbitant, that is strong and forceful and can finish in the next ten years what we plan to do under God's blessing. So we've got to find the pace to finish the race. That's the one I said would, I think, relieve the stress of the kind of straining forward that we're always doing. One more. Number six. There has been controversy over worship styles and forms. Should we shout to the Lord or should we not? Should we sing contemporary worship songs or hymns? Should we lift our hands to the Lord or not? Should we be extemporaneous or planned? Should we have fine culture or folk culture? Should we serve outsiders or insiders? Now, those of you who came to the last five weeks of the Bethlehem Institute and heard my teaching on all these ought to know what my answer to every one of those questions is. Anybody know what my answer is? Yes! That's right! They didn't know in the first service. Thank you. My answer is yes! Yes! I will never choose between those things. Never! And therefore, what we find is a kind of tension in which we're moving around in the middle of this continuum at Bethlehem, trying to discern the needs, the longings, the passions of our people, the kind of visitors who come and might come. And as we move around here on the continuum, seeking to find a worship that gives maximum release to the maximum number of people, one thing I pray will always be the same. Namely, worship at Bethlehem, I pray, will always be God-centered, Bible-saturated, and blood-earnest. God-centered, Bible-saturated, and blood-earnest. Not boring, not glum, not dreary, not joyless, but on the other hand, not cavalier, not trivial, not trite, not careless, but full of passion, full of zeal, full of intensity. We come to go hard after God. We feed on the glory and the grace of God. That, I think, is the blue hot tip of the flame that sets on fire the missionary enterprise of this church. You know, we have said for years and years, and we're going to keep on saying, worship is the fuel and the goal of missions. The ultimate goal of the church is not missions. The ultimate goal of the church is worship. Missions exist because somewhere in the world, true worship doesn't. And when true worship exists among all the people that God has gathered from every tongue and tribe and nation, missions will be no more. It is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship will be forever and ever and ever. And that's what inflames our missionary zeal at this church. God is at the center for worship 
and God becomes the center for the missionary enterprise. And so I don't think it's any accident. I think it's part of the design that here on the brink of 2,000 by 2,000, we're dreaming, thinking, talking, praying, acting in worship to find out who are we? How can we worship so that the most people with the most passion can be released on the most Sundays up to the most high? That's what I long for. So I ask you as we close, do you see disarray or do you see with me design? I see design the more I pray, the more I think, the more I study. That God is moving. He is putting things in place. He is positioning us to draw us into the very center of his awesome will for this last decade as we press toward the completion of the Great Commission. And... Frankly, I'm excited to be here, and I plan to give the next 10 years of my life to this vision of 2000 by 2000 at Bethlehem Baptist Church, and I want you with me. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, much of this morning's message has been my interpretation of contemporary work of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, I am open to correction. And I long very much for your people to see what you're doing. I want us to be united behind the vision of 2000 by 2000 and see how everything is fitting together to make us powerful, structured, full of love and zeal for this great missionary cause. Oh, Father, do it, I pray. Just in the moment of quietness here as we close, speak in your still, silent, small voice to hearts. Perhaps some you are going to call to the missionary enterprise vocationally, even now. Some have been praying over years, wondering what they should do. And maybe this is the moment where they'll hear you say, go. Others are going to hear some lifestyle words about their money. We're all senders or goers. And I just long, oh God, that we would be streamlined, wartime senders. With a mentality like we had during the Second World War when nobody bought extra tires the rubber went for the cause. The metal went for the cause. And we stripped down for war. Oh, Lord God, teach us that we are at a much more important war than those days. And the stakes are so much higher. So whatever you have to do, Lord, do it. Ask it in Jesus' name for his glory and for the good of millions. Amen.